Um, just so you know, in uh, about two weeks, we're going to begin uh, a journey in the Minor Prophets. I know that the daytime ladies study are studying the Minor Prophets as well. I'm not trying to compete or anything like that at all, but we'll be beginning with the book of Joel. So if you want to even just start reading that through, you know, get familiar with it, that would probably be helpful. Um, Pastor Steve is preaching next week, so keep him in your prayers as he continues his own exposition. And today, we're just going to ask a simple question, are you living for Christ? Are you living for Christ, or are you living for yourself? I just want you to ask that question. The Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What does that verse mean to you? Can you say that? For to me, that's you personally, right? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we're going to see Paul opens up his heart here. He he pulls back the curtain and allows us to see this, this inward struggle that he has, that he wants to depart and be with the Lord, even as we read in 2 Corinthians 5. But at the same time, he realizes that he's needed to the church at Philippi. And so we, we get a glimpse into Paul's heart, even at the end of verse 20 uh, in Philippians 1. He says that Christ may be exalted in my body, whether I live or whether I die. What's, what's the supreme concern is that Christ would be exalted. So he says, for me to live as Christ in every aspect of his life, his earthly existence is completely saturated with Christ. But to die, and all must die, by the way, one out of one people die, just if you're keeping track of your statistics, Um, everyone will die. And your spiritual condition determines where you will spend eternity, either eternal punishment in hell forever, unending punishment, or eternal bliss in the presence of of the Lord. One of the Valley of Vision prayers reads this, Thy cause, not my own, engages my heart, and I appeal to Thee with the greatest freedom to set up Thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify Thyself, and I shall rejoice, for to bring honor to Thy name is my sole desire. Lord, use me as You wilt, Do with me what thou wilt, but I promote thy cause and thy kingdom come. We sang that today. And let the blessed interest be advanced in this world. It is thy cause and kingdom that I long for, not my own. That should be the prayer of everyone that has been born again. That doesn't mean that we don't live our lives, we don't engage in our careers, we don't raise our children. It doesn't mean that at all, but it all is done in the realm of Christ and seeking to bring Him glory. For Paul, to live as Christ is to have sweet communion with Christ, sweet fellowship with Him. It's, It's that He serves with great joy because He is in Christ and that devotion uh, that you see throughout all of Paul's writings. And, and dying is gain, not because it's an escape from this life, but dying is gain because it leads to a more fuller union with Christ. 21 times in this letter, Paul talks about being in Christ or with Christ. It's a connection to Christ. 
And dying means that that comes to complete fruition because we are with him in his presence. Well, just very briefly, um, one-off message in the book of Philippians, a little bit about uh, the letter before we jump into our text. Um, From what we can tell, this letter was not intended to be a circulatory letter like Ephesians and the others. Um, It uh, is a very personal letter in which he primarily, primarily is writing to thank the church for their generosity, for their financial support that they gave. The church made regular contributions to the Apostle Paul's ministry, and even after he left Philippi, including a financial gift that was delivered from Epaphroditus during his imprisonment. As you know, chapter 2 gives an extended exposition of Epaphroditus, how he gave himself nearly unto death to uh, lay down his life, as it were, for Paul on their behalf. They had helped before, that is, the church at Philippi, and even from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you can sense something of their own poverty. So they gave out of their poverty, right, because of their great love. Many expressions of love. Paul talks about this dear affection that he has. He he uses language like, how I long for you, right? That's love letter type words, isn't it? You know, he loved this church. This letter weaves together the truth of the gospel and and living in Christian community. Uh, Koinia is mentioned several times. Fellowship, partnership, the the close association of having uh, the same mutual interest and close fellowship. The gospel of Christ with the fellowship of the community of believers motivates Paul with his outburst of joy and rejoicing as you see in this letter. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the joy of the Christian is a holy joy. The happiness of the Christian is a serious happiness. So Paul emphasizes the idea also of thinking biblically in this letter. The uh, Greek word phrone is used ten times. Uh, For example, in chapter 4 and verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is good, of good repute, if there's excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think on these things. So today, we'll consider uh, verses 21 to 26, really primarily focusing on verse 21, but I I tried to tie it together uh, exegetically and homiletically as well. And so we see that Paul is setting forth a new perspective, as it were. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's read 21 to 26. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, For that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all of your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Jesus Christ through my coming to you again. Father, we do thank you uh, even for your your word. We thank you that we could sing your word as we have earlier and 
hear it read among us and now to hear it preached, O God. Would you have your way in each and every heart here? And Lord, may we answer that question, each of us ourselves, are we truly and really living for Christ? That we would, as it were, take, take a tally on, on how we're living our lives even this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at this under uh, three uh, headings. A difficult dilemma identified, that's verse 21, right? For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. There's this dilemma, a difficult dilemma deliberated as he considers and wrestles through that, and then a difficult dilemma pastorally considered, and that's verses 25 and 26. So first of all, this difficult dilemma identified. Really, what I think what he's saying here is that we ought to have an eternal perspective when it comes to living our lives. In other words, we don't just get caught up in the here and now. Like, that's not all there is, right? There is a whole eternity that we need to be preparing ourselves for. And so Paul's purpose of living was to love and to commune with Christ, and and now he asserts what this living and dying mean to him. The verse seems very abrupt. It comes kind of abruptly in the text as far as the flow of the passage. And, and notice that first word there. You see that for? What is the for there for? <laughs> well, it introduces a, a, a confirmation statement. Remember he had just said in verse 20 there that, that now Christ even now be exalted into my body, whether in life and death. And so that's what he's been thinking about. And then he says, well, for, this is a statement to confirm that to live means Christ and to, to depend on Christ and to honor Christ. One of the commentators says this, or, or paraphrase it this way, I live only to serve Him, only to commune with Him, and to have no conception of life apart from Him. Did you ever think of that? No conception of life apart from Him. In other words, He's a part of everything, whatever you do. It's as Paul says in Colossians, for you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ in God. Death is gained because our union with Christ will be completely realized, as it were. And the tense of the verbs here, when he says to live as Christ, that's present tense. But then he, he, he says to die is gain, and, and he uses a past tense. He's not talking about the act of dying, but the result of it, which supposes to be the past and over with, which is gain. D.A. Carson um, says this, in context, to live, with it, to live as Christ surely means that for Paul, to keep on living means, means ministry, Christ-centered ministry, Christ-empowered ministry, and Christ's presence in his ministry. To die is to bring that ministry to an end. But even so, there is only gain since the ministry is not the end in and of itself. It is now swallowed up into the glorious delight of the unshielded presence of the exalted Jesus Christ himself. The unshielded presence. You know, who can see God and live, right? We're, we're told, and, and yet in glory we will be able to see him even as he is. It means to derive one's strength from Christ 
as Paul says in 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Also, it means to have this experience with Christ. In uh, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That leads to him being able to rejoice, as he says in chapter 3 and 4, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, right? And so to live as Christ, um, let's consider that, the various ways. First of all, we live by faith, right? If we're to live is Christ, we're walking in faith, right? As we were told. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted him in, unto that day. To, to live for Christ means to walk in love, even as Christ demonstrated such unconditional love to the people, even during his earthly ministry. Such unconditional love even to us as His elect. And so for us, as we reflect that and we're living in Christ, we are to walk in love. Furthermore, we are to walk in communion with Christ, even as it says of Enoch that he walked with God. What, what, what better compliment is that? He had such communion with God. How does it say in Hebrews that, that and then he was not? He was taken up. He didn't have to die. He was taken up into the presence of the Lord. Jesus Himself says, Abide in Me, and I in you. In our community group, going through 1 John, we're kind of bringing that abiding nature out that you see developed in John chapter 15. But even in that letter, it's very apparent that we are to abide with Him. And that's really Paul's secret spiritual power is his abiding with Christ and living for Christ. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To live in Christ means to live in dedication to serving Him. It means that if Christ says, I love my bride and I love the church, that means you, Christian, and you, Christian, are to love the church of Christ. How is that manifested? Well, by serving, by loving, by meeting practical needs, right? The list could, could go on and on. And so are you living for Christ or are you living for yourself? Do you give the bare minimum only to the church, are you giving as much as you possibly can to the church and her ministries? To live for Christ means we're walking in obedience, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Does that mean keep them perfectly? Does that mean we're earning, earning our way to, uh, for salvation by our good works? No, of course not. It doesn't mean that at all. 
but it means that we're concerned when we break God's law. We fall on our knees. We keep short accounts with God, and we, we confess that sin, and then He forgives us. We strive to honor Him by walking upright. I mean, it's, it's interesting that even at the conference, one of the messages talks about that, that whole idea that, that we're in a Reformed camp, you know, that we're sinners, we're wretched, and all of this kind of stuff. But at the same time, we're called saints. Paul uses that language. And, you know, even the psalmist can say that, that I'm walking upright before thee. And so, you know, it almost sounds taboo to put all those uh, uh, adjectives to apply to us. But in Christ, we are. We are to have a single-minded devotion to Christ. Are you living for Christ? Are you living for Christ? Well, what does it mean to die as gain? Let's consider that a little bit. Uh, Death will be a distant gain because it will be the gateway to a clearer knowledge and a more wholehearted service, a more exuberant joy, a more rapturous adoration, all of these brought to a focus in on Christ. Surely, if even now Christ is magnified in Paul's life and in his person, it will be even more magnified on the other side of death. At the Ligonier conference that we were, some of us were at the last couple of days, Pastor Chris Gordon gave a glorious message on the beatific vision and that the idea of, of what it would be like to, to see Christ face to face and, and what do we have in this life, but we, he's given us things that we can see. But he took as his text, Psalm 27 and verse 4, where Paul, or Paul, <laughs> David says, one thing, one thing I've asked of the Lord, and that shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. There's a lot that could be said. It's hard not to just kind of go here and preach this verse for a few moments, but the singularity of the desire of the psalmist, the earnest dedication that he will seek it. And this isn't a temple you know, covered in gold and, and all of this. This is still the tabernacle. The temple hasn't even been built yet. But what, why? To behold the beauty of the Lord. Those outward ordinances, there's a sense in which we behold the beauty of the Lord. For us, it's, it's the, the living Word of God, especially as it is preached. It's not that we see images of what Jesus might have looked like or what He looks like now, but no, we, we're, we're, we're hearing from the Lord Himself. Even in this life, under the means of grace when, and the corporate worship of God's people and and all of that is, is, is what we get to see as a foretaste and a holy anticipation of someday seeing Him face to face. And He's given us tangible things. He's given us the ordinance of the Lord's Supper by which we can remember Christ and His great work and His bruised body and His precious blood that was spilt. That there's a reason why Jesus says, do this in remembrance of Me. It's not an optional thing that maybe I'll take the Lord's Supper in a couple of months. Do this in remembrance of me. Those are the tangible things that He has given us to remind us that Christ is real and someday we will see Him face to face. And what a glorious day that 
will be. One commentator said this, death, it cannot be doubted, was gained to the possible the apostle in a personal sense. It removed him from suffering and disquietude, disquietude um, lifted him out of the prison, it translated him into the presence of Christ. It gave him heaven for earth, enjoyment for labor, spiritual perfection for incomplete holiness. It brought him into the presence of his exalted Lord to bear his image, to live in his splendor, to hold pure and uninterrupted fellowship with him. To die is gain. Dying physically means gain for Paul because it means to be with Christ. One of the theological dictionaries says this, the gain of Christ is the ultimate good. Death itself is thus gain. Philippians 1.21, since it marks the end of a life of martyrdom and leads to life in Christ. In Philippians 3, it recounts his own privileges as a Jew and as a Pharisee, like circumcision and a faithful adherence to the law. But what he at one time considered profit, he has become, for the sake of Christ, a total loss. Because these things were bound by the law of human achievement and conferred none to the righteousness that comes from God. Paul, therefore, regards human gains as losses in order to gain Christ and to be found in him. And really, that's what that section of Philippians 3 is talking about, right? It's a ledger. All these things that you thought were gain and all these things you're checking on the, on the plus sign, ultimately, when you put it in perspective, those become losses. They're losses and will lead to eternal loss if you continue to trust in all your human achievements. Charles Spurgeon says this, It seemed to me to be the highest stage a man to have no wish, no thought, no desire, but Christ. To feel, to feel that to die were bliss if it were for Christ. That to live in punery and woe and scorn and contempt and misery were sweet for Christ. To feel that it did not matter what became of oneself so that one's master must be exalted. To feel as though like a leaf that were blown around in a blast. You are quite free from anxiety as long as you feel the master's hand is guiding you according to his will. Though like the diamond, you must be cut. You care not how sharply you may be cut so that you may be made fit to be brilliant in his crown. So, how is death gained? For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Well, it's a fulfillment of some of the things that Paul tells us how we ought to pray, how Paul himself prayed for the people of God. Ephesians 1.18, for example. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart... You got eyeballs in your heart? <laughs> yes, we do, in a sense, right? That the eyes of our heart, our perception, may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of His glory, and His inheritance in the saints. It's a, a fuller knowledge. That's how death is gained. 1 Corinthians 13.12, he says, For now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face, and now I know in part, but then I'll know fully just as I have been known. 
knowledge about death comes from the Bible alone. The Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, after this, the judgment. It's very, very clear, Hebrews 9 and verse 27. There is an appointment that you will keep. You cannot erase it. You cannot delete it from your iCal. It is an appointment you will keep when you leave this life. One of the Puritans said, the weakest saint in heaven knows more than the greatest saint on earth. Isn't that true? It's face-to-face reality, right? Paul himself was caught up into the third heaven, right? And he was given a thorn to humble himself that he would not boast. Well, how else is death gain? Well, you have holiness and sanctification, as it were, perfected, right? Paul says that the the good that I would, I don't do, and the very evil that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? The Romans 7 struggle is gone forever when we pass from this life. It is a completed sanctification. Paul says, may God sanctify you entirely. In a sense, this is entire because it's glorification. And so that lifelong struggle with sin, fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, having the spiritual armor on and the sword of the Spirit, and the weariness that comes from running the race with endurance finally comes to a completion. We can finally then rest in glory. As we saw just recently in Hebrews 12, 23, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We join them when we leave this life, if you're in Christ. How else is it a gain? Well, a companionship with all the assembly of heaven, with all the the righteous, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's what Jonathan Edwards calls heaven, a world of love. And in that that little booklet, he just describes how the fellowship, even amongst the saints, we have such sweet fellowship. We'll be fellowshipping out there after the service. We fellowship uh, throughout the week, and we have sweet times together. But picture that enhanced a hundredfold. There's no sin. There's no distractions. It's sweet fellowship, one with another, with the assembly of heaven. But most of all, that pure communion with Christ, seeing Him face to face. It becomes so real. It's the fellowship that only Christians can long for because if you're outside of Christ and you're here, you're not going to be delighted to see Him. You're going to see Him as eyes with a flame of fire and one that will judge you for rejecting Him. The wicked are at enmity with God. They have no desire for Christ in this life or the next. Young Scottish man by the name of John Patton, a well-known missionary, before he left, he was planning to go on this missionary endeavor to the South Sea Islands. And he was prompted by a fellow pastor to warn him, and he said, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, You are now advanced in years yourself, and your own prospect is soon to be laid into the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if 
I can but live and die serving, honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. That's a man that knows what it's like to live for Christ. Right? As many days as that, that he would give. I mean, there are several other missionaries could be, could be um, listed. I mean, uh, of how God has used them because they were sold out for Christ. We know that death removes our worldly troubles and we see Christ face to face. Are you ready to die? You young people, are you ready to die? You know, there's no guarantee you're going to live to be as old as your grandparents or your parents. If you're not ready to die, you're not ready to live. Right? You need to have that that determination of having dealings with God to where you're ready and you have an assurance, a confident assurance that you'll be welcomed into His presence. Now then, you know how to live. Okay? It's not the other way around. I'll live and then hopefully I'll be prepared to die. You need to be prepared to die first. Make your eternal destiny sure. Then you'll be free to devoting your whole life and all of your energy unto serving Christ. Well, that's the difficult dilemma identified. Uh, and now more briefly, we'll look at our second point, the difficult dilemma deliberated. So now that I've unpacked that, this is what Paul says. This is how he's deliberating this in his mind in the context of his love for this church. Verse 22, And if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed in both directions, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul conveys this tension as he opens up his soul. A tension of what? His personal desire, but his Christian duty, on the other hand. And he says, I don't know which to choose. I don't know which to make known. Paul assumes that it is God, not Caesar, who has his days numbered. He has the authority, God himself, to whether he will live or whether he will die and when that time is. He has a bold assumption in the sovereignty of Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God, not Caesar, who controls Paul's destiny as he sits in a cold prison cell even now. Certainly Paul knew what he wrote to the Romans, that for we know that God works all things for good to those who love God. Right? And so he's talking about this fruitful labor. This fruitful labor. It will mean fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which to choose. It says a tree needs sun and soil and water to, to bear fruit. So Paul depends totally upon the life of Christ in him to bear fruit. Verse 23 I'm hard pressed, having a desire to depart. This word for desire is the word, it's used both positively and negatively in the New Testament. It means a strong, earnest desire. It's the word that's used for lust, sexual lust. And so he has this, it's not just a desire, I'll flip a coin. He's got a strong, strong desire to depart and to be with Christ. 
By the way, some have an obsession with death and a fascination with it. This isn't something new with the people that dress like goth and are into all the zombie movies and all of that, but this goes back to the time of the Egyptians, even the Greeks. Um, But, you know, that's a morbid obsession with death, right? And that would be wrong. But Paul has this tension. Paul can rejoice in either of the two alternatives he weighs up, and yet he says, I'm torn between the two. It was like two equally strong external forces pressing in on him like a vice. You know what a vice does? It just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And that's, that's what he was experiencing. The word here literally means to press in from all around and leave little room for movement. It's the word that's used in Luke where um, it's, Master, the people are crowding in and pressing in on you in that mob scene. It's to cause distress from various circumstances. Paul uses it here, for the love of Christ constrains us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died. The idea here is Paul feels a tension. He he feels a pressure. He he feels the the tension to, I want to be with Christ. And he even says here, look, this is very much better. Not great grammar there, right? We wouldn't say it like that, but very much better. And then he says, verse 24, but to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. To remain, to stay, to continue um, is more necessary. So, Paul's legit desire gives way to what is necessary pastorally, and that's the final two verses, the difficult dilemma considered pastorally. Verses 25 and 26 are really just an amplification of 24, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ through my coming to you again. This progress, you think back in uh, verse 12 of chapter 1, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. It's a remarkable thing. He's concerned about the progress of the gospel. And so, and even their own personal progress. So, Um, Silva, one of the commentators, says this, Just as in prison he had become an instrument for the advancement of God's word, looking at verse 12 there, so upon his release he will be used to bring greater spiritual health to the saints that reside there. Paul will remain based on the conviction that it is what's best for this church. It's what's best for these believers. And this will lead to his own joy and the faith. He says several times how he hopes to be coming to them shortly. Chapter 2, verse 24. And I trust that the Lord, that I myself will also be coming to you shortly. We see that in several of Paul's letters, and it leads to this proud confidence in which he wants to boast in them. And we are told, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, a couple concluding thoughts as we wrap up. In what do you boast? 
Are you living for Christ? In what do you boast? For Paul, it was every aspect of his earthly existence. He was completely saturated with Christ. Kent Hughes, one of the commentators, says, we must understand that for me to live is Christ is not a triumphant sentimentality of a trouble-free life, but a joyous embrace of even the burdens of the cross of Christ. In effect, altogether, this meant that Christ was at the conscience center of everything. He's like the hub on the wheel and all these other spokes. He's the hub. And he says, in effect, altogether, it meant that he was the center of everything so that Christ had a Christ-centered ministry, a Christ-powered ministry, and a Christ-exalting ministry. A couple questions. Are you living a life of gratitude for Christ? Are, are you conscious of what he's done for you and delivering you and pulling you out of the pit of destruction, delivering you from all manner of wickedness, drug and alcohol addictions, pornography addictions, all of these things. He's delivered you. Are you living your life, a life of gratitude for that? Do you desire his pure worship? Do Do you come hungering and thirsting after righteousness on the Lord's day to get everything that you can to get more of Christ? Or do you come grudgingly, kind of just do the bare little minimum? Man, the Lord has so much for us if we would redeem the opportunities that He has. It doesn't matter if you're a window cleaner, a manager, a plumber, an engineer. It doesn't matter. You can live your life for Christ. I know death isn't a very popular uh, topic. We have a couple of visitors. Uh, Maybe you're going to object and say, I came for happy stories and self-esteem, and and what a disappointment. Death is a grim subject, but you can't candy coat it, right? One out of one. That's the statistics. 100% of us are going to die, and we need to be ready to die well. And that's why for us young people, our children, it's so important that you flee to Christ. Why why stiff-arm Christ? Why Live a life that is dishonoring to Him and to your 20s and 30s, and then maybe you might come to Christ. Experience the joys of being born again at a young age. Something I never experienced, and many of us never experienced. For all of us, it's very natural to fear death. We've never died before, right? So it's, it's natural to fear death on, on the one hand, but also to realize that we have no guarantee we're going to live to be 70, 80, 4 score, and 10, or whatever, however you want to say it. Uh, there's no guarantee we're all going to live to an old age. Disease is real. Heart, heart attacks, heart disease happens all the time. Cancers are an alarming rate of growth. We've got no guarantee we're going to be here. Let's make every day count for living Christ. Knowing Christ, we can face death. Knowing Christ, we can know that that we're going home when that time comes. We know that He's altogether sovereign. If He brings something terrible like that, it's according to His will. We can have a great confidence in that. May God help us to let go of selfish concerns and selfish comforts and carnal comforts but to even take risk for Christ and to live for Him in all we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. and.
We thank you even for Paul's example and writing for us, Lord. May we be those that live for you and make a difference. May we be those that are first and foremost prepared to die then so that we can live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.